Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. On today's episode, I'm excited to welcome a guest who Instinct Magazine recently claimed was helping redefine the definition of the term Scream Queen. The filmmaker behind such projects as Thirsty and Santa Land, his most recent project, The Quiet Room, has made an impact on the festival scene and is without a doubt a significant entry in the new queer horror canon. Please welcome to the show, Sam Weinman. Hello. Hi, Sam. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Michael. I'm so happy to have you here today. I have a feeling we have a lot to discuss uh, because you have been uh, doing some really cool stuff in the realm of queer horror lately. It's been a very exciting year. Well, that's what we like. And let's keep it. Let's keep that excitement going. Uh, So why don't we kick the show off uh, with the same first question I ask every guest. And it is simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. What's your connection to horror? What why do you think people are drawn to it? But why horror? It's my favorite question. (laughs) (laughs) I think that for me, horror, why horror has changed over time for in general. My answer is just that it's a space where marginalized characters can fight oppressive forces. And uh, to that, I connect. I connect with like the strength of like the final girl. Mm -hmm. That really gets me. Um, When I was a kid, I was bullied a lot. And I know that watching a horror film meant that I could do something that other kids couldn't. And it gave me this kind of strength. So I remember feeling like, you know, I would I would always sneak out and watch Tales from the Crypt after hours, even if it you know scared the shit out of me. And I would do it every weekend at like 1130 after my parents went to bed. And I'm talking like, you know, seven, eight years old. So I was really into the idea that I could do this thing um, that made me stronger or maybe made me more adult in a lot of ways. Um, I always like sleepovers were my jam because I could rent, you know, three or four movies that I could never watch on my own. And then all of a sudden I was allowed to get like these R rated films. So just like head out to the video store, get what I can and uh, come back. And I would be up until dawn watching them. And I live for that. Um, Now uh, I see the kind of horror that I'm drawn to tends to be uh, allegorical. Mm hmm. I like that we can explore social issues in horror, Um, you know, and that's not just new get out kind of stuff. I'm talking like Night of the Living Dead or the fierce feminist girls of the 1980s. Um, Horror is a space with a lot to chew on if you want it to be. Right. And if you don't, then it's also, you know, it's camp. It's um, it's like going to see a drag show on the weekend and we're all hooting at the screen, you know. Sure. But you know what I think is really interesting about that is there are the people, you know them, I know them, who uh, they don't want message movies. Like, I just want entertainment. Like, I want, I don't necessarily need allegorical horror. But the truth is, this genre exists in a subversive space. And anything subversive, by just sheer definition, is a political act, whether you realize it or not. And I think that, you know, the thing about the campy horror movie or, you know, the fluff horror movie, as it were, and I don't believe there's any such thing, is that camp is political. It is taking the piss out of the modern societal norms. You know, when you watch a John Waters movie and everyone is so affected and over the top, He's making fun of people. Yes. And and just like how highly they regard themselves. And that, you know, that to me is like so interesting. You, you bring up the final girls and uh, we've had this discussion with many guests about how there is a queer connection to the final girl because she's usually the outsider or, you know, someone who's had to survive something beyond what the other characters survive. Uh, 
But even the, the movies of the 80s that we te- technically consider to be popcorn movies, you watch the Friday the 13th franchise, there are parallels to the politics of the time. Absolutely. Uh, and so I, I really just, I, I love the idea of, of your connection to allegorical horror, but I also caution listeners to, to be aware that art should always, in a way, be allegorical. Just some's better at it than others, or serves us a, 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 a platter much more, I guess. Um, I did my undergrad at UC Berkeley, and while we were there, we're encouraged to do student talk classes. Like you, you come up with the syllabus and get a teacher to sign on, and you can teach, you know, a two-unit class. And the class that I taught was um, a horror film class, and mm-hmm. it was tracing the slasher from 1974 to today. My emphasis was through the decades what social issues were being processed in each film, whether the whether the director knew it or not. And right. that's what's important, because I think that sometimes people are like, well, yeah, but is that what this movie meant to be? Like, is the Hitcher really about, you know, the HIV crisis? Maybe that's not what they meant. But if people are responding to that or they're responding to Halloween and the fear of urban sprawl, suddenly Halloween is a film about suburbia and and whether or not we're safe in these expansions. You know, it, it just depends on it doesn't. For me, there's allegory to be found in all of it, which is something I enjoy a lot about horror. Right. What I like about that, what you just said, is that sometimes there's the intended allegory and sometimes there's the allegory based on whatever uh, the viewer's experiences or the societal experience. Uh, And John Waters is a great example. We were talking about this with last week's guest, how um, there is there are queer movies but then there are queer movies, like movies that don't necessarily have queer characters. But you and I or people in the LGBTQ spectrum will watch a movie and be like, yeah, this is kind of really gay. Or in, <laughs> even if like yeah. someone in middle America is like, no, it's not. I'm like, no, but it is because the environment of this movie is speaking to something queer, even if the filmmaker maybe didn't necessarily intend that. Absolutely. I don't know. Uh, look at look at us just off off on on the run. <laughs> um, so let's talk a little bit about your genesis and in, in this genre because I love the idea that your your initial interests stemmed from sort of a place where you got to you got to do something that the kids who kind of held other things over you couldn't do. So there was a power to watching horror movies that that you took. Um, and there's something really amazing about that to me. I, I want to know from that empowerment watching horror movies, whether it was sneaking out after your parents, your parents went to bed at 1130. Girl. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, my day's just getting started. Uh, from the, you know, the, empower, the empowerment of watching these films that not many others could watch at that age to kind of like being the king of the slumber party, like having that opportunity. When did you realize that this was more than just something that you were really into and that it might be something that you wanted to gear your life towards? You know, that's a really good question because when I got to film school, I felt pretty insecure with my fellow students who were like, I picked up a camera when I was eight years old and I've been wanting to do this my whole life. Um, For me, I didn't grow up thinking that this was a real career that I could have. I I thought my dreams were too big. And so I was working at a video store, you know, when I was 18 and just curating my horror recommends section. I was working at Borders and, you know, special ordering out of print DVDs as much as I could to our department, you know, and filling out these cards with recommends. I, I was all about the facilitation of getting those stories to other people like myself. 
and I loved it. Um, I didn't think it was realistic that this is something I could do. It wasn't until um, I did. I had a podcast for a little bit. Um, it was a holiday podcast. Uh, it, this is years ago. And I went through this breakup. And in the breakup, I'm like, OK, what can I do? that would be any sort of storytelling. So I went to 12 cities in 12 days mm -hmm. and I did this Kickstarter about how I'm going to use dating apps to get a new date in each one of those cities. So um, my friend was like, well, you can't do a podcast because a, a podcast, a traveling podcast is just a podcast. Right. Um, so why don't you bring a camera? And that was at that point I had already, um, I had taught my slasher class. Uh, I had, uh, written and produced uh, a horror musical while I was at Berkeley. So, you know, those are, those were things that were very much on my radar and I'd done a lot of writing. Um, and that's, that's what my focus was at that time. Um, but then we brought this camera on this road trip and that was the beginning for me. I finished this film project and I realized I could do so much more than I thought. And so I reevaluated everything. Um, I had gotten into, I had actually gotten into USC for a writing program that was uh, specific to creative nonfiction as well as screenwriting. And I decided not to go and I reapplied to a bunch of programs as a director um, with having only had that as my, the experience underneath me. But um, it, it kind of flung me onto this journey that I can do exactly what I thought, you know, which to me is creating horror films. Right. Uh, it was just something that um, I never thought was possible. And then is completely possible. <laughs> I like that this all stemmed in a way from a travel log. Oh, yeah. Um, and I, like, the idea of you visiting 12 cities, going on 12 dates, utilizing dating apps. Uh, there's something sort of Nancy Meyer about it. I feel, <laughs> I feel like there's, uh, it's like your own eat gay love kind of situation. Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> now, did you always write? Yeah, I've been writing uh, since I was a kid. I used to I used to tell my mom bedtime, bedtime stories like I looked forward to going to bed at night. And I love um, I loved Grimm's fairy tales. I was I was always really into dark stuff. When I was in third grade, I remember we had this this like assignment about write uh, a half a page story. I wrote an eight page story about a boy who like befriends a monster that lives under his bed. It was super dark. Actually, is a lot like <laughs> the short film I just made um, in the way that he comes through dreams. Um, but I. Uh, from that moment on, I was like, oh, I'm going to be a writer. This is what I'm going to do. Um, I just uh, had limited it to the page for so long until I made that play. And when I saw people bringing my words to life, something inside me began to change. Tell me about that play. You said it was a horror musical. Yeah, yeah. It's called New Year's Kiss. Uh, it's a zombie musical. Um, it's about... Uh, uh, the zombie virus is sexually transmitted, or at least that's what people believe that mm. it was. Um, it came from it, it originated in AIDS patients. And so there was all this homophobia when the breakout happened. And so people became closeted survivors being closeted with their identities. And um, it the story takes place completely at a bookstore, which had already, you know, it was during the phase when bookstores were closing down. And this guy is basically goes to this bookstore to wait for his lover who had volunteered as a fireman during this stuff. And, um, and has to keep his identity a secret from the people who are also hiding out and surviving there um, so that he doesn't make waves. Um, but it's very queer. And I remember at the end of it, um, it was opening night, which was awesome. We, our opening night was Mother's Day and it was sold out. And I'm like, people are bringing their moms to this. All right. Moms like horror, too. Moms love horror. Uh, this big gay zombie movie or not movie play. But um, and the music was a lot of fun because I had actually um, I had a music background because I had been doing um, music, comedy music videos for a number of years. And so I kind of channeled that into this. Um, but when at, at opening night, uh, somebody had said, so 
do straight people ever live in your stories? And I realized I just constantly kill off straight people. <laughs> but I, that was kind of this awakening. Where I'm like, I'm trying to create queer heroes. Yeah. You know, and that's something I can do with intention. I mean, my response would be, do gay people live in yours? I love that. Because how often, for how long, mm -hmm. were we the ones that didn't? Uh, by the way, just <laughs> complete brief sidebar, I had a vision. Like, there should be a whole other podcast called uh, Moms Love Horror, where it's the, it's the mothers <laughs> of horror movie uh, directors. Just, or can I you imagine? Yeah. <laughs> I'm into it. Someone make it happen. I already host a show. I've got too much to do. <laughs> uh, so would, did you ever want to turn that uh, play into a film or is it just because of its singular setting? It just makes sense to be. It's setting really made sense to be um, a stage production, although I have thought about it, especially recently. Um, but I've seen a few zombie musicals. I feel like I've moved on to so many other projects. I love it. And I love the Like the music is the thing that um, I feel the most connected to in that story. Um, but, uh, but I have not transitioned into adapting that for film yet. So one of the things that we've discussed a little bit uh, or alluded to, I suppose, we talked a little bit about bullying. We talked about queer content in this play. But let's let's talk a little bit about the clashing of queer identity and horror. We're not clashing so much as the coming together. Uh, do you feel like some of your interest within the world of genre is wrapped up in your queer identity? It has to be right. I mean, I, I think that. To me, horror is queer. And so they feel one in the same, although I know that it's a space that all sorts of people can enjoy. For me, it is so personally tailored to my identity. Mm -hmm. I mean, the one thing it's really missing is the types of representation that I know everybody else gets from right. this genre. I can see that. So from from the play and realizing that you were, you know, the 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 world of writing up to that moment felt restricted to the page. And now you have this idea that you can write things that can be collaborative. Uh, I assume just being a fan of film, your mind went there. I can, yeah. I can see. So what's the trajectory? The play's done. You're like, Oh shit, I can do this. What, what are the next steps? So at that point I started thinking about what the play would be like as a feature. And that's when I started applying to schools for writing something beyond that. But I still think that I was afraid Mm -hmm. You know, I had this this voice inside me that's like being a director is one in a million. It's like um, I feel like going to music school and being like, I'm going to be a rock star. So I thought that being a writer was a safer way to go. I'd always been praised for my writing growing up. And that was the thing that people really like my English teachers tried to nurture in me that I was just I felt was a value. So I still thought that okay I as much as this would be a big dream it's not what I'm going to do um so it's funny how by pushing that down other things came up you know I would continue to make these music videos or you know I did day trip and I made that series it's just as much as I would try and suppress that the things that I was doing for fun were all things that now looking back it's like oh right I was totally building my career and had no idea you were just steering yourself towards that. Now, I don't know this about you. Are you where are you from originally? So I was born in Pennsylvania, but I, I moved around all my life. Like once I hit eight years old, I moved just about every year mm -hmm. um, just from city to city. So I've lived in, you know, Kentucky, Colorado, New Hampshire, 
all over the map. Um, I came to California late, late high school. And so um, and I've been here since then. I lived in I mean, I did my undergrad up in the Bay and I lived there for a number of years in Santa Cruz, Sacramento, um, Stanford, kind of bumped around. Um, and in the summers, I still actually I teach a film production class at Stanford um, oh, for three weeks. Uh, so, you know, I, I kind of have a lot of homes. Uh, and then I lived in Orange County for a few years while I went to grad school. Um, so where I'm from is a tricky question because I don't really feel I don't really feel connected to any one place. I mean, I like cheese fries and water ice, which is like the food of my people back in Pennsylvania. So I know like as much as as much culture as I have, it's that. But well, I mean, I I moved a lot growing up as well. So I definitely I always like to say that like Nomi Malone, mm. I'm from different places. Ah, what a hero. Yeah, she changed it all. Um why is all of the food, this is, here's a tangent that's about to happen. Yes, please. Why is all of Pennsylvania-based food always French fry-centric? You know what I'm talking about. Of course. Only in the state of Pennsylvania can you order a regular salad and will they put French fries on it? If like any, anywhere else in the world you were to have a salad with French fries, it's like an added extravagance. Whereas if you're in Pittsburgh and you get like just a Cobb salad, you, it, it's going to have fries on it. Or you can get a soft pretzel at a gas station. And I don't mean like like a super pretzel, like those ones that are soggy and in a plastic bag and shaped like the number eight. I don't know. I right. just I think that people in Pennsylvania know how to junk food and they do it well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I uh, remember doing a convention in Pittsburgh horror realm uh, that was big at the moment. And I had just done uh, the tour of All About Evil with Peaches Christ. And Mink Stoll was at the convention as well. And Mink, coming from Baltimore, she said to me, she's like, what's going on in Pennsylvania, Michael? And I was like, I, I don't know. What, what are you talking about? She's like, everyone's well fed. <laughs> and I'm like, girl, we like carbs. What do you want? I still like carbs. I'm in. I can't believe Mink stole read the read us. Honestly. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, she comes from Baltimore, so she's used to a read. Uh, <laughs> so w when you came down here to Los Angeles, was that when you really started fully like committing to pursuing this full time? Absolutely. So um, when I started film school, that's when I was like, you know, I, I went, I started my undergrad later. Like I went to Berkeley when I was in my mid twenties. Mm -hmm. So for me, I feel like I used every opportunity at my disposal. So when I got into film school, I wasn't going to waste a second of it. Um, every exercise became an opportunity to make a short film every winter break, every summer break, I was making extra films. I just wanted to get really good at this one thing. Right. Um, I think there were maybe like, there was maybe a week at film school where I pretended like I might not make horror. <laughs> I was like, I'm really open to all sorts of things. And you know, that was over as soon as we had our first exercise and and I heard a room full of people scream at my first scare. And I'm like, nope, this is what I want to do. I want to make people feel this, <laughs> you know, this sense of dread when they watch the thing that I'm making. Now, some of the films that you made in film school, when was the last time you watched any of them? So actually, when we did our, I had a big, um, I was really excited to screen The Quiet Room at the Directors Guild. So when that happened, I got all my friends together and we watched all of my film school movies in order, you know, right before that. So I would say, you know, about uh, yeah, 11 months ago, maybe. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so I've seen all of them pretty recently. I like that you watched them before you screened at the DGA, because in a way you got to see your personal evolution. Yeah, I got to see, so um, Eli Roth did this, uh, the, the New Bev Theater does 
some fantastic things at Halloween. And one year they had Eli Roth go through basically everything that he'd made up until that point. And in the middle of the night, he ran his film school movies and everybody was just losing their mind. I mean, the growth that he's made, obviously, as a filmmaker is huge. And no matter how you feel about Eli Roth, it is incredible to see what a filmmaker is making in film school versus what they do with a budget. Absolutely. And I kind of wanted to have that moment. I wanted to see um, how much I had grown from the beginning. And, you know, it's funny because even from... The through line to all my films is queer characters and scares. You know, it's it's been the thing that I want to shape each time I want to tell stories with gay people. Oh, my God. I get to have uh, a drag race uh, finale moment where I'm going to ask you, looking at the films that you made in film school to the one that you screened at the DGA, what would you say to yourself about your own personal growth? What what changed? I would say if I could go back, like kind of advice to myself, that yeah. drag race moment, which, yeah. which I live for, yeah. by the way, and great job. In fact, Aquaria. I have this childhood photo of you right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at me as a little boy. Um, I would say don't be afraid to fight for the diversity that you want to see, because I've heard all sorts of excuses along the way. And I let a lot of people kind of shape what I was looking for um, when I was learning a lot. Um, the thing that I had to learn not to compromise was diversity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I had this moment, uh, <laughs> it was, it was like my second year, this, uh, professor who, um, called me into his office and he asked me what I was thinking about for thesis. I told him about the quiet room and shared it with him. And, um, he looked at me and he shook his head and he goes, oh, I'm so disappointed. And I, I was really taken aback. I, I'm like, why? <laughs> and he's like, you know, when we, when I brought you here, I thought you were going to tell real stories. And I looked at him and I said, this is my story. And that was it. You know, I mean, it's, it's the idea that the thing that I'm going to be making is not going to be a thing everybody sees the same way. Right. Um, but uh, sometimes that fire is enough to get me to make it even better. <laughs> you know, it's like that moment defined me in a lot of ways because I walked out of there and I, I made that thesis film. And my kick to ass, you know, and who knows, who knows what would happen if I didn't have so many people telling me not to. But early on, um, I remember specifically with diverse casting and having queer characters, I made compromises and there's no need to make compromises. I think that's a very important lesson. And I think it's something that we all can learn uh, as artists and as people, because I think that there's always going to be individuals who try and tell you what your vision should be, but the only one who knows is you. Mm-hmm. And what I think is, you know, probably a commonality amongst anyone who's, who lives in genre. Uh, we've all had that professor to some extent, you know, I, I thought you were going to tell real stories. Okay. So yeah. what's that mean though? What's a real story? There are horror movies that have more emotional weight than, you know, just a standard drama and vice versa. Like, you know, it's all in the telling. Right. Uh, what? I don't know. What is it? What is the Ivy Towers aversion, do you think, to, to genre material? What do you mean? In the way that if you go to film school, they don't want you to make the horror movie. 
they don't want you to write the horror story. I had a professor who, when I was in a modernism class, she didn't think that my opinions on Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse were valid because I liked Stephen King. And like, mm. what do I know? He's a supermarket author, you know? Uh, it's interesting to me, that response. And this is why. I mean, I always roll it out, but like horror will make money. So yeah. if you want students who are going to make money, encourage them to make horror, uh, especially if they love it, because so many people make horror that don't love it. And it shows. Yes. It's when you have a filmmaker who wants to hone that ability, nurture it, because I don't think it's something I think it's pretty rare. Also, you know, I was coming from a film school where Stranger Things had come from us, you know, and and. I, considering that's the background, you would think there would be more encouragement, but, and there, there, there are, there are always people there, you know, to help you along the way. But I think that for the most part, it felt like there was a push to make one kind of film. Right. And it's usually like sad people staring at the clock. Sad white people. Yeah. Staring at a clock. Oh my God. Sad white people staring at a clock uh, is going to win the Pomodoro exam <laughs> next year. I, <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm a fan of all kinds of cinema and all genres, but I swear like the ennui of just mediocre whiteness is so I'm over it. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it wasn't until I embraced the queer part of myself that I really succeeded at film because I don't, I don't just mean, you know, when I think about films that I made like Santa land, which I love and I love screening with audiences, especially at Christmas horror festivals. Like right. that's so fun and hearing people scream. Yes. Um, but you know, when I have having straight actors playing gay or having a primarily white cast, I'm missing I'm missing the world that I exist in. Right. You know, when I made The Quiet Room, I had a friend who was very smart and he was like, and I, I had gone through and I had done most of the casting already. And then he was like, why not cast through Instagram? Why not just reach out to the people that you respect and ask them? And that's what I did. And suddenly I got everybody I wanted. I mean, really, I, I made I made a film with people that I never would have dreamed I would have made at that level. Right. You know, and it's just because I had the guts to reach out and ask and do something unconventional. I think that what you're really saying and what I'm, I'm responding to about this is that you really felt like your art took that next step when you didn't shy away from your authentic self. Yes. And there's, you know, I think there's something to be said that you can make a monster movie, but if, uh, if it's an authentic, if it comes from the heart and there's authenticity to it, then it's going to be great. Uh, and I, you know, I like that. I think that's a, write that down in your dream journals, kids. Uh, you know, just always be authentic in whatever you do. And you can always hold your head high. Um, I want to talk about Santa Land, though, uh, because I am a huge fan of holiday horror. Yes, same. <laughs> and, uh, you know, even at the top of this episode, when you were talking about your your travel log adventures, you wanted it to be a holiday podcast initially. Mm -hmm. Um I mean, maybe a different kind of holiday, but uh, talk to me a little bit about that particular project. And um, let's dig a little bit into the little discussed world of uh, Christmas horror. I cannot wipe the smile from my <laughs> face. <laughs> I live for Christmas horror. So at my, at my home, my Blu-ray shelf is divided by there are Christmas films made for TV Christmas films, then um, Christmas horror. Then below that is holiday by horror and then just holidays. So I have and that's all each one has its own kind of 
special place in my heart. And uh, as far as my favorite film of all time, it's Black Christmas, I, the 1974 version. Although I love, I have in time grown to love the remake for exactly what it is. Right. Modern day exploitation brilliance. Um, but holiday horror is to me, that was that's like my access point. It's that Tales from the Crypt episode with Santa Claus coming into the house. You know, it's um, not just Halloween, but specifically Christmas. That right. to me is everything. Um, so when I did Santa Land, uh, I was obsessed with this uh, Christmas theme park outside of L.A. It's in like Lake Arrowhead. Um, have you heard of Santa's Village? Yes. Okay. Isn't that like up near Solvang kind of area? Or? No, no, no. Well, yes, there there were a few of them. So, and there was one in Santa Cruz, and there's still one that is owned and operated in New Hampshire, which I haven't been to, but have to go. Um, but this one had been closed for years. It had been all dilapidated, and people would break in. And of course, so I was, um, God, I want to say it was like six years ago, I tried to break in. And I uh, got caught by a security guard. Oh, no. <laughs> but I took this uh, this picture of it on Instagram. I'm like, someday I'm going to make a movie here. And that's and that was like the seed for Santa Land. You know, uh, Christmas horror has always given me life. I love I love just Christmas movies in general. But you add a component uh, of an element of horror to that and you have something very special if you do it right. Well, I think the thing that no one ever really takes into account about the iconography of the holidays is that when you sort of step outside of it, there's something very eerie about all of it. There's, you know, you, you see, you know, we've all walked through uh, a dark room where there's only Christmas lights on and the strange shadows that casts or, you know, paintings of Santa Claus or like the, those old timey Christmas toys. They all have like those dead eyes yes. and, and snow itself. Winter is the, a time of death. And I think that we have culturally impressed such a notion of uh, joy that. It sort of goes back to what we were talking about uh, earlier about, you know, the allegory of it all or like finding the aesthetic of it all and just kind of giving it that twist. Yes. And you're like, oh, this makes you happy. Well, guess what? And there's something fun about that, though, too. The one the one safe thing. What's safer than Christmas? Well, surprise. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Silent Night, Deadly Night. That poster. I mean, haunting. I love Silent Night, Deadly Night, Black Christmas, of course. I, I think Christmas Evil is a fantastic yes, motion picture. Absolutely. Nary gets discussed. Uh, but no, there's just something about Christmas and horror. I love that for, this episode is going to air in the middle of July. Christmas, Christmas in, in July. July. It's perfect. <laughs> for me, the holidays become darker as you get older because right. um, what I love about the holidays is they are uh, it, it's it's a blessing and a curse it is a bookmark I can't remember what I did today you know three years ago without looking at on this day or my time hop but I can tell you what I did three Christmases ago I can tell you who broke my heart and what song I was listening to I can tell you who I watched that Christmas tree lighting with you know all those things for some reason we bookmark the holidays and it allows us to kind of travel through time that time of year every year and I think that as we get older, those memories compound in a way where it can be beautiful, it can be warm, and it can be haunting. You carry these ghosts with you. Mm -hmm. So there's something about the holidays already that I feel like as an adult, there is a feeling of something missing and a search to fill that with something from the past. And so when you, to me, it's already haunting. And that's why I'm so fascinated. And I just love the holidays. 
Well, that's interesting because, uh, you know, outside of horror, I also write a lot of TV movies and I've done a number of TV Christmas films. And one of the things that we talk about, about like, you know, Hallmark, well, like at the end of October, we'll do like two solid months of Christmas movies. And, Mm -hmm. and the thing that you're really hitting on, uh, what people love about the holidays is an idea because, and that's what those movies are. You know, movie Christmas is way better than real Christmas because it hits all the ideas of what we think and want and need Christmas to be, Mm. as opposed to the actual reality of the stress of the season. Maybe like if you're a queer person, you have to deal with family members who you normally can step aside or there's financial strain. Uh, And I think that, you know, in a Western world sort of way, our idea of the holidays is shaped by film because that's sort of the onus that we project on them. Mm. Like all of our ideas of the holidays kind of come from movies because when you look at the reality of them, they're a lot more complicated. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Talk about a sidebar. Well, and it it kind of all wraps together. I mean, just with interest in holidays in general, but like, I know you and I had talked before about, I just got back from AIDS life cycle, which was this, you know, journey down the coast and to make money for it, to raise money. I recorded a Christmas album because just like Christmas movies, I love Christmas music. I think it taps into something that can tap into something really raw and very emotional. And on the, on the flip side, it can be completely vapid and just fun and campy. Right. That's what I love about Christmas is like the same thing I love about horror. You know, I can do both. I can dive into something and I can really work at it or I can celebrate its campiness. And look, you made a short that definitely speaks to that love. And because we talk about how holidays can be timeline benchmarks, you forever created a moment for your own personal holiday timeline. Yes. And that's awesome. (laughs) I love that. Uh, Before we leap into AIDS life cycle, because I want to talk to you a little bit about that, uh, talk to me a little bit about recording an album because (laughs) the world of, uh, you know, music artist Sam, is that something that like, do you always... Oh my gosh. (laughs) Had had you always had an an interest in the world of music? Tell me about that. Yeah, absolutely. I I love music. Um, I love writing music, but for me, and I love performing. Uh, Things you should know, I've complete stage fright. I get super scared every time I'm on a stage. I forget the words every time I perform my first song. And then after that, it's fine. But I love it. It doesn't matter. You know, uh, it's just something I really dig. Um, When I got into filmmaking, I mean, this isn't filmmaking, but it kind of was. Uh, It was through MySpace. So I had done um, a bunch of MySpace music videos for uh, just songs. Oh, my God. You were one of those. Girl, I was. <laughs> and this is before YouTube, you know, where it was like parallel with YouTube. So I was on these comedy charts with like Chris Crocker, you know, and I'm thinking, oh, this could be my this could be my life, you know, and I and I would do these. And what was interesting is so my I, the the thing that I made or the songs that I made were unapologetically queer in a in a George Bush era. So it was not you know, not super welcome. I did. I mean, there was then Obama got elected and still like one of my songs was like about gay marriage. It was, do you want to get married? And it was a response to prop eight, you know, and I would get these messages from, you know, middle school kids all over the country that were just like, I've never seen anything like this. That's what ignited this fire inside about making queer art. Mm -hmm. So whether I knew at that moment, I'm like, whether or not it's going to be music or it's my writing, because I would write these songs, you know, it's, it's the thing that I'm going to do is create 
something queer and make it mainstream, which is what I love about genre. There's nothing more mainstream than genre, right. you know, and because that's how I'm going to reach people. It's not making something queer for a queer audience, which I do love and I and I appreciate so much. But it's it's actually getting in there and subverting what we see every day. It was the power of seeing me uh, seeing a video that I made on every, you know, MySpace login screen for a day because it was the selection was it meant everything. Right. And that was actually what inspired me to I had dropped out of high school. Um, I got my GED and I went back to school, you know, and I'm like, I'm going to learn how to do this. And that was the beginning of my journey as a writer. So music was always a piece of me. I never imagined myself as like, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, like a rock star or something like that. Like that wasn't my jam. It was just like, how do I create art and reach people? And so I took those songs and I made I, I altered some of them and wrote some more original pieces. And that's what I made my musical out of. Uh, so that was kind of the beginning. But as far as my Christmas music career, because that's like <laughs> a super real thing. Right. Uh, I've been making ever since then, which, you know, that was like 12 years ago. Every holiday, I make anything from an EP to a full album of just stuff that I record um, and I give it to my friends for the holidays. So this year I'm like, OK, I have all these songs I've been sitting on. Like, I mean, I have. I have like almost 200 songs, you know, um, I should take the best of them and re-record them with a, a buddy of mine. Um, uh, does, uh, he's a, uh, does film scores and he volunteered his time and we cut out this album together. We spent all of December recording a little bit of November and just, you know, put together this holiday album for, to raise money for AIDS life cycle. I love that. And so the, any, the songs were just re were versions of anything from the MySpace days to now, you know? I, uh, wow, if we ever do a Dead for Filth tree lighting ceremony, we have to have Sam come perform. Oh my God, I would live for that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually trying to imagine what that would look like. It would be like former guests and like a, a dead Charlie Brown tree because <gasps> with like maybe like a little skull instead of a bulb. Oh my God, yes. And if, as long as there's a lot of blood, because I just love blood on snow or blood on yeah. fake snow. I mean, it is California. Now you're going to perform uh, and also Mariah Carey because she's like uh, contractually obligated to show up to any tree lighting ceremony. <laughs> Perfect. She'll like, you know, she'll do whatever she does. <laughs> she'll sing. She'll not sing. It yeah. doesn't matter. That's what I'm here for it. Yeah. <laughs> Living. You're going, you're, you're the main event though. Just so you know. <laughs> she's opening for you. No pressure, but I love that. And then we're going to watch Glitter. Merry Christmas. Beautiful. Uh, so AIDS Life Cycle. You recorded this album to raise money for your AIDS Life Cycle journey. I want to talk about it. We've talked about AIDS Life Cycle a little bit with guests in the past. Oh, cool. Uh, we've had guests who have participated or sponsored yes. uh, before. But you just recently returned from the ride. In fact, we started planning this episode before you left. And I was like, let's yes. wait because I want to, I want to hear about this journey from the comfort of my couch here in the recording <laughs> room. Um, so for listeners who might need a refresher, uh, because you just took this, this adventure, could you tell us a little bit about what AIDS life cycle is? And then just tell me a little bit about your your experience yeah absolutely um aids life cycle is a bike ride from san francisco to la it's 545 miles it's actually 560 but five that's just the number they give and right. um and we raise money uh for the la lgbt center and the san francisco aids foundation and that money goes into life-saving services it can be anything from what's happening in their clinic to supporting people uh, financially who have HIV, AIDS, um, housing for people. I mean, it's everything. Mm -hmm. And um, they raise a lot of money. There are uh, 3,000 of us that participate. And this year we raised $16.6 million. 
And uh, that stuff goes right back into the community that I'm a part of. And I definitely have used services at the LA LGBT Center. And that's something I wanted to support. Um, what it is, is a bunch of people um, over the course of seven days camping out at every location along the coast and then biking the distance between it. And it's a community of people getting together to support one another in that. And everybody has their own reasons for joining. Um, for me, I lost a good friend of mine to AIDS uh, in 2013. And uh, it was actually a, a, right after I had recorded my first, um, right after Day Trip. And uh, I got to show him the first episode of Day Trip before uh, before it aired. And, um, and he actually passed away a few days later. And um, so in a lot of ways, over the past few years, I've been wanting to do something for him mm -hmm. and something that I can give back and really, uh, you know, connect to that piece of myself, um, especially since that journey has led me so far. Right. Um, and so this year, that was the thing. Yeah. When you made it happen and uh, it's such a wonderful cause. And uh, I think that probably everybody who comes to it has a personal connection. And I'm glad yeah. that you shared yours with us. Now, I was monitoring uh, via social media your journey, and it was not <laughs> without peril. No. Tell me, tell me a little bit about what happened there in the middle of the, of the ride. Well, okay, so in the middle of the ride, my bike, like, exploded. I mean, that's pretty much, like, the gears just popped off my, my, my bike and lodged themselves in the spokes. And I'm like, all right, well, that's over. <laughs> I'm on day two. I'm in the most beautiful place. We're riding through Santa Cruz, um, where I used to live, actually. And, uh, and I was just, uh, I was a goner. But luckily, um, there's so, what's cool about AIDS Life Cycle is it's so organized. I mean, there's like a chiropractic team, a sports med team. There's a team of people there to just fix bikes at the end of each day and at every lunch. And so we got my bike to them. They took a look at it and they're like, this is not going to get fixed, but we'll give you a loaner for the rest of the journey. And I was able to ride out the rest of my ride with their loaner bike. And it was awesome. It was a better bike than it came on. So, you know, it's, it's fine. Success. Yeah. And, uh, and what's cool is there was an opportunity for me to keep going when I thought that I wasn't going to be able to. And I had spent the whole year training. So right. my heart was broken. I mean, if you had been monitoring it on social media, I'm sure it looked kind of positive. But any I mean, because I'm like, hey, this thing happened, but I'm going to see what, it, what how it works out. Like, meanwhile, I'm like in the middle of a desert crying in a bus, you know, I mean, just like, <laughs> but it worked out. Well, it's sort of like a great you, you said that you love allegory. What a what a wonderful allegory for the whole experience when you think about it it's about perseverance but it's also about community help and people did come together a hundred percent you know and there was this phone call that i made to my cycle rep and good friend uh, my friend james and i called and i was like i you know i was in tears it was the second day and i had spent so much time in bike repairs i mean over the course because leading up to that there were a number of things and it, my first few days on the, the ride i'm like i haven't met anybody and i thought this thing was like gay summer camp it's supposed to be about meeting people and like what if my husband's back at camp but i'm not going to meet him because i'm you know over here getting my bike fixed and he said um you know all the people, the people fixing your bike, the people working in the sports med tent, they're all there because they care about this cause. Your life cycle experience is everything around you all the time. It's the people on the bus when you get, you know, picked up to take them back to camp. It's like, and I thought about it and I realized, oh my God, it's all of this community. Right. It's not just one thing. And that's what's so beautiful about AIDS life cycles. It's so many different people that come together to make this thing happen. Are you going to do it again? Oh, hell yeah. I signed up for it on the ride, like day six. Uh, here's a dumb question, because I don't even know if people do this. Uh, do you, did you name your bike? 
I did not name my bike, but people do do it. But I felt like because it was a loner, it didn't feel like me this year, yeah. though. This year, I will. It'll be mine. Gotcha. Um, yeah. Are there any notable substitute teachers you could have named your, your alternate bike on that one? Uh, no, I love that story. I'm glad that it worked out. And I, I love, you know, the message of perseverance and community that it, it really shows because you've committed so much of your work to uh, the queer community. Uh, it's nice to know that it really is a community. And it sort of feels like even though they may seem unrelated, uh, there's validation there. I think there's validation like you ha you have been trumpeting this cause and fighting for this cause that when you're actually amongst the queer community, it does come together and it shows how important that communal experience is. We can take care of each other. Yeah. And I love that. You know, it's funny because my argument for when I first came out and I remember my mom being like, well, have you tried, you know, <laughs> or just people in my life like, ha yeah. and I'm like, you know, would I choose being gay? Would I choose all of this pain if I could? And right. that was always my argument. Would I choose it? I can tell you right now, like hands down, I would choose it. <laughs> like me yeah. today, it's like, I love being gay. I love being queer. I love the LGBTQ Q community. And I love experiences like I had an AIDS life cycle, even getting to AIDS life cycle. People, you know, I people gave me their hand me downs for biking gear. I had a loner bike. I had, you know, people came together for a movie night raffle to help support me to get my travel to get there. It's like we are a community full of people who have been through a lot and tend to lift one another up. And I love that. Right. Well, this is a good transition point. Speaking of people who have been through a lot to talk about the choir room. Because that is, a, you know, as I talked about on the, the top of the show, it, this short has been really traveling around, making waves, causing a discussion. I think it's a really important new entry in the queer horror canon because you uh, tackle topics that don't normally get tackled in this this place. Uh, talk to me about the genesis of that project. Yeah, it's... Uh the film takes place in a psych ward. Um, the main character, Michael, uh, tries to kill himself and he wakes up in this psych ward and he didn't leave a note and inadvertently awakens this psych ward urban legend. Hattie, who um, instead of going after him, she like tries to isolate him by going after everybody he forms a connection with. Mm -hmm. um, the beginning of that project for me was really thinking about uh, telling my story. Um as a as a gay survivor of suicide, um, I wanted to tell something that felt like the story that I've experienced. And it took a lot of years to figure out exactly how to do that. You know, I made Thirsty. I made Santa Land. I made a movie called Furbots. You know, I, I explored a lot of different sides of myself before arriving at this. But I wanted to make sure that if I was going to tell the story, I was going to tell it right. Right. And um, and so for me telling my story was taking this very internal experience and externalizing it by turning it into a creature. So I took my experience with depression and made it into Hattie, you know, and her, the rules in which she operates, she operates like depression. She, you know, she isolates, she comforts, you know, and sometimes those things can feel comforting. Right. Um, even when they're dark and even when they're hurting the people around you. Um, and so I wanted to be able to express that visually and I couldn't think of a lot of films that got it right. Right. So um, especially in horror, psych wards are for sure a trope, right? Because we're trapped. And right. um, 
And it tends to be uh, like a white middle class problem. So we think like Girl Interrupted or even thinking about um, as I love American Horror Story season two. I love it. Um, but even in that, it still feels very, you know, it doesn't feel as authentic as I think the everyday experiences that people who struggle with mental health have had. Um, it might not be a place where people are really getting repair. It right. might just be a holding cell, you know, just to make sure that you get to the next step. Um, and I think that there are a lot of people involved in that process that really care. And I think there are a lot of people that are burnt out. And I thought it was important to show both sides where a lot of times in horror films, we have that like nurse ratchet villain and that's kind of it, you right. know, um, or like the do-gooder that comes in. Like I love dream warriors, but oh man, <laughs> yeah. you know, those, those cliches, uh, they exist uh, throughout all of psych ward horror. So I wanted to show something a little bit different. Right. And I think that because you did, it has really struck a chord and resonated with people. I think what I'm fascinated by, this is the project that you took to your professor. <laughs> and yeah. he said that he was disappointed because he thought you were going to make real stories. Right. But you're tackling very serious topics with the very... With with very great care to make sure that you represent it not in a trope way, and to recognize mental illness and the 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 different feelings of being in a place like that. I'm just wondering what it's like for you to have that journey where you have this person that was like, "This isn't a real story," to now see it out in the world and the response it's getting. There's got to be a validation there, but. Also, just knowing that because you took this care to do it right, I'm sure you've had like some really excellent feedback. I have. Um, you know, I don't I don't stop to think about it a lot. I think uh, I get a little emotional if I do, mm -hmm. <laughs> which emotions are awesome. And I'm an artist and I'm sensitive. So that's wonderful. Right. But, you know, uh, it is validating. Um, if anything, it's. I think younger people are a smart audience, especially the drag race audience. And so having two drag queens on board, like having Alaska as our monster, having Katya as Brian, Brian um, you know, playing one of the nurses, uh, it's brought in this whole, you know, social media generation who are quick to be like, but this is a psych word. You better do it right. You know, and I've seen that kind of Twitter storm. And then I've seen people's response after the film and being like, thank you for getting that right. Um, that's a powerful thing yeah. to be able to tell a story that people connect with. And I can't say that it's right for everybody. I can't right. say that that's everybody's experience, but what I can say is, is it was my experience. So it's going to ring true to somebody, you know, and as long as I stick to that sort of authenticity, the payoff of being able to connect with people, um, through something like mental health, which is touched literally everybody and it, whether it's you firsthand or somebody that, you know, right. um, it's validating in its own sense. I agree. So going from, you know, the serious discussion of the film, you did reference the fact that part of your cast features two prominent drag queens to the world of both television viewership and social media. Um, tell me a little bit about casting them. And then I want to dig a little bit into the relationship between drag and horror with you. But like, let, how did they get involved? Sure. Um, I wrote Hattie with Alaska in mind. I mean, hands down from the beginning, I'm, people are like, what does Hattie look like? And I was like, Alaska, anus album, instead of white hair, it's black. 
black nails and corpse skin. You know, and it's like <laughs> that was the beginning. It's like drawing these pictures. And I just kept pulling Alaska's some of Alaska's drag as references. And I'm like, you know, why not Alaska? Why? Not? I mean, I know it sounds crazy. And for, you know, telling people I'm going to cast Alaska in this horror film, you know, I think the response was like, good luck. <laughs> you know, um, but I had her in mind and um, and I think I wrote a pretty kick ass script. And that was the second piece. It was like I wrote it specifically with this goal and I wrote a script that, you know, an artist can respond to. So um, I'd actually pitched Alaska's uh, manager on a different music video before, which hadn't panned out with a with a different drag queen. So we had already been in touch that way. So I just reached out and I was like, hey, I've got this other film. What do you think? And sent over the script immediately. There was a positive response. And what was great is um, he was like, oh, by the way, Katya is free during this time, too. And I'm like, done. <laughs> this can't be real life. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because it's kind of like I was thinking one or the other. I didn't think I'd get both. This is fantastic. I'm like, I'm living my queer dreams. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, but uh, that was the beginning. So getting Alaska on board and solidifying her as our monster allowed for me to um, explore other avenues, you know, get a really kick ass makeup artist, um, Lacey, uh, sorry, Lainey Chantal, who had been on uh, Face Off. Um, and she's worked for, you know, Rob Zombie, Marilyn Manson. And she was able to create kind of a story through that makeup. And I think it was fun for her to be able to know, you know, to work on Alaska. Right. Which also made for interesting conversations like the day when it was Lainey, Alaska and Katya sitting in the makeup room and they're all, you know, they've all been on a reality show. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, it's also very different uh can of worms, bag of cats, whatever the analogy is. Uh, I think when you are a makeup artist doing makeup on someone whose like job is makeup. Yeah. Because, you know, if you or I were to sit in the chair and have them do effects on us, like we kind of know about it, but like Alaska or Katya or Peaches Christ or these people sit and do their makeup every day. Yes. So there, I feel like even if you're a professional makeup artist, there's like maybe a level of intimidation there that, that we don't get to talk about. Um, but you are a drag fan. I love drag. <laughs> <laughs> um, but have you ever done it yourself? I haven't. I, I don't know. I feel like I'm not really, I mean, I get, well, listen, Cameron Michaels is showing us all that you can, but I don't feel like I'm really built for drag. I'm super hairy. I have a rockin' beard, which I know drag queens can do. And yeah, but I'm like broad shouldered. I just don't think I really have the body for it in one of my, my space videos, which is definitely not on the internet and none of you will be able to find it. I did do drag <laughs> for just one song, uh, the song called Indie Girl. And uh, and that was uh, enough for me. Someone's jumping into the dark web right now. There's no way. <laughs> <laughs> it's gone. Good luck. Uh, so one of the things that I talk about with guests who have a foot in the world of drag, whether they're drag adjacent or drag queens or whatever, is uh, we've seen so much interest with between the drag community and the horror community in this sort of like Venn diagram. Um, and I'm wondering if you think there is a correlation between drag persona and horror. I think there can be. Um, I, I mean, surely not everyone, but yeah, right. yeah, yeah. I, what's amazing about horror is kind of what we're talking about with where it can be, where it's so over the top, or it can be, it can be right. so over the top. It can process social issues. Um, it can be campy. It can be serious. And so can it, it horror and drag can do the same sorts of things. So I think that it's along those lines. When I made my monster, obviously it's like, Oh, she's a drag queen. 
I mean, those things are, I mean, it could easily be that. It was expressing, because Hattie, as our monster, has a full story that never appears in the film. That's all in her makeup. Right. You know, and it's it's there if you look for it. That's a drag queen. I mean, that's an art, you know, and that's what they do. So I do feel like there's a lot of crossover there. And um, I think that with drag, I like I love drag that expresses horror. Like, I mean, we all think about iconic looks if we're just even thinking about drag race where like Sharon Needles rolls out in that zombie look and you're like, oh, that blood. You right. know, I mean, there are these moments where it, it just... You can really nail it. Um, I live for that. But then think about like Freddy Krueger. Freddy feels like a drag queen. I mean, he does to me. He's got his one liners. He's got his his looks. And then Freddy's rolling out in everybody's nightmares with new looks. Right. You know, it's like (laughs) he's got his he's got his stripes, but then he's like doing something else, you know, and it's like where he becomes this giant where it's like he's always doing something. Right. Category is dream master. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, really, he to me, I think that. He was my first drag queen. <laughs> you know what's so interesting is you are not the first person to draw the Freddy uh, as a drag character parallel. Peaches Christ is very obsessed with the idea <sighs> that uh, to her, Freddy is a drag persona. I love and, it. And um, I think that that maybe is where the crossover lies is is the complete embodiment of otherness. <sighs> And well said. I, and I think that, you know, there is a thing where there are drag characters who maybe are not drag queens, but it is drag. Like Paul Rubens is Pee Wee Herman. Yes. Cassandra Peterson Elvira. is Elvira. Yeah. And I, Robert England is Freddy Krueger in a way that, you know, the guys in no disrespect, they're amazing stunt performers, people who become Jason or Michael Myers. Right. But there's a theatricality to Freddie uh, where, you know, it affects the way he walks. It affects the way he moves. There are flourishes. Yes. I had said uh, a, a couple years ago when the Babadook came out, uh, I had done an interview with some publication where I talked about this sort of um, the flamboyance and heightened presentation of characters. And I, I said, you know, Freddie is our Ethel Merman. Like he is the mm. Ethel Merman of horror because who else can take the stage like that? Yes. Who else do we want to take the stage like that? Yeah. Yeah, and meanwhile, and I think the Babadook is like uh, in Diane Keaton drag. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Babadook. But that's also why you can think about with uh, Freddie, we don't replace the actor, right? No. Because there's something about what he brings to it. And that's what I was thinking when I was thinking about Alaska and why mm-hmm. I specifically wanted Alaska. Alaska, Alaska isn't just... A, a queen doing different looks. Alaska is an entire character. So Justin, the actor, you know, playing Alaska knows how to do that. Yeah. And I think that he brought so much to the character that we created. Yeah. And there's something really interesting. Like it's, it's layered in ways that go beyond your normal performance when you have a queen play a character in a movie as opposed to an actor playing a character because you're now having layers in triplicate. Yes. I always say, you know, when you watch John Waters films, it's not just Don Davenport. It's Don Davenport being portrayed by Divine, who's being portrayed by Glenn Milstead. Glenn first has to become Divine and decide how Divine would portray this woman. It's yes. not like there's a step in between. There's, there's steps that no other actor has to consider. And so the idea that you could have probably hired someone to be Hattie, but you wanted Alaska, but to get Alaska, you have to get Justin to portray Alaska to portray Hattie. Yes. And that's that, you know, that's storytelling of a very intricate level. I appreciate that. 
because that's something I thought a lot about. I mean, even so John Waters is one of my heroes. And I feel like whenever I went to that's another film school question, I always answered wrong. It's like, who's a who's a director that you really aspire to? And it's like John Waters. Right. John Waters and Wes Craven. Like, sign me up. Um, and But John Waters did something with stunt casting constantly that I just, I love and live for. Right. I mean, is it Tracy Lords? It's like, it. Patty Hearst. It's, yeah. he can take a character who means something to us outside of the context of the world of film and then shape that person into a character in his film that has all of this extra meaning just because of who it is. I thought about that a lot when casting The Choir Room. I mean, we had uh, one of our nurses is played by Lisa Wilcox, who is a final girl in Nightmare on Elm Street 4 and 5. Not an accident. She kicks ass in both movies. I she love does. that she lives to kick ass in a second one. You know, it's like that thinking about that, thinking about getting Alaska and Katya in a scene where Alaska you know, can come after Katia is a big deal. You know, it, it means something to drag fans outside of the context of my film, right. which is why I love seeing the quiet room at horror festivals as well as queer festivals. Everybody at horror festivals catches like Lisa Wilcox and those Nightmare on Elm Street references. Everybody right. at LGBT festivals catches like the drag queen stuff. Like they lean over to their friend and whisper when Katia shows up, you know, because it means something extra to us. Well, and then shout out to Eating Out alumni, Chris Salvatore. Yes! Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> because I have a feeling that the horror world may not know Chris, but as a longstanding alumni of queer film festivals, I adore him. Um, you know what? It's interesting, too, and I'm sure that you've experienced this and will continue to experience this because I straddle that line often. And sometimes I make something that to me is a horror piece, but it works better at a queer festival mm. because queer audiences are not conditioned with the expectations of horror audiences and sometimes something that I'm like oh this is hella queer it's not going to work for horror fests because they don't see that very often it's sort of like yeah Uh, so I don't know I think it's fun being cross-genre in that way it's also weird to consider queer a genre it's kind of like our lives but right yeah (laughs) here we are uh, no, I think it's, it's, it was brilliant. And I love that the, you brought up the idea of stunt casting, but I think the key to stunt casting is always stunt cast, but then actually give them something to do. Mm. Like, because it's so easy to have like a, an actor you really like just come in and do a cameo and be like, Hey, it's that guy that I like in that thing. And he's the security guard. What are you kids doing here? But you gave them something to do. Like these are performances and they're good. I love the performances I got. And also it wasn't, you know, I say stunt casting and I think it has a bad rap too. It's like, yeah. okay, stunt casting, it could be anybody can do anything. It's like, I mean, I chose people who are very talented. Like Chris Salvatore is amazing. He can get everything in like his first take and do it exactly the same way from every angle. And he told me it was because when he was doing eating out, they only had one take. So we would have to get it the way they did it in the master in every scene. Working with an actor like that, incredible. Having a drag queen who's used to um, changing their behavior in the way that they move. Well, that means that when we create Hattie, all of a sudden we've got a movement that this creature does that is consistent in every scene. Everybody brought something different, you know, and Lisa Wilcox, my God, she's, a legend, obviously just from what she did. But I mean, she was my first day on set and she sat down and started delivering these lines in this scene with Michael, um, or Jamal Douglas. And, uh, and everybody just looked at each other and we were like, it was that moment where it was like, Oh, we're making a real movie. Right. Uh, I have to say I am a huge nightmare on Elm street Four fan. Uh, it's my favorite of the franchise. <sighs> Yes. Mostly because I think it was the one that I just happened to catch when it like, cause it was like the, the nightmare for the MTV generation. Yeah. Like, yeah. And Alice has always been my favorite. 
I think that uh, that scene where she kind of suits up for battle at the uh-huh. end and it's with like the most 80s montage. Uh, anything, anything, yeah. Anytime I've ever run in, and this is like the gayest thing ever, anytime I've ever run into Lisa, I'm like, you don't understand. I was like, when I was a kid, I wanted Alice to be my best friend, you know? And she, <laughs> she's like, okay. Because uh, <laughs> I'm sure she hears that from everybody, but uh, there is. And it kind of cycles us way back to the beginning of the conversation where when you are young and queer and you attach to this genre, you see yourself and attach yourself to these characters. Like Alice is an outsider. Mm-hmm. She's not, she's not queer in the sexuality spectrum, but she's queer in a person spectrum. Yes. She doesn't fit in with anyone else, but she has to take the individual strengths of everything she's lost and put it together to overcome. And like, that's a queer narrative if ever I heard one. So I think what's really special about somebody like Alice is it feels like she has this thing that is a hindrance to her personality or that that keeps her, you know, and it turns out it's a superpower. Right. And that I feel like is my story arc as a queer man. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's this thing that I felt like held me back. And it turns out it's the thing that allows me to soar, even in my filmmaking. Right. You know, really embracing that, really embracing who I am and my authenticity allows me to be something bigger and better than stronger than I ever thought I could be. Well, I love that. And I love that authenticity kind of became the theme of today's episode, because I think it's so important, not just for fellow artists to hear, but for people just living their lives. You know, if you live an authentic life, you'll live a happier life. And I think you'll find the people who will support and love you because you're being you. Um, and I, I really like the tale that you told about how when you were younger, you, you would do the thing that so many of us do, or you're like, why would I choose this? Why would I choose this? It, to the evolution of, I would choose this because this is who I am. That's your moment, Sam. You are the dream master. You, like, <laughs> that's your, you, that's how, how you have seized it. Uh, I love that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I just, uh, I love, I love empowerment. Uh, what have you seen lately that inspires you? We're talking about art inspiration through art. What have you gone to see? What are you uh, excited about? What's what's lighting a fire? Besides the Judgment Night episode of Riverdale, <laughs> which I found to be very inspiring, loved it. Uh, no, Hereditary, I feel like, is the thing that I've seen the most recently that um, I watched that film and I'm like, Am I ever going to make something this great? Like that feeling, that's the ultimate compliment. Like when I see a film and I I get afraid that I can't do that, um, that's the kind of movie I like. Um, It left me thinking about, there were moments that I think in the context of other films would just be moments of violence that that sat with me because of the way the emotional setup for Mm. them um, that really left an impact on me. But I know that that movie is very divisive. Like I talk to my horror friends and people either love it or they're just really not into it. Right. Well, I think it's a new school of horror. It's not really a new school of horror because if you look at things like The Changeling or the things from that, it, they, right. that's a spiritual kindred. But I think we've also fallen into a thing where we've forgotten the art house of it all. Uh, yes. And we're finally kind of hitting uh, our stride of, of, of that 70s aesthetic again, where it was very important to not necessarily get from point A to point B, but like do something with it. I agree. And I, I think that it can be, it can still be the thing. Horror can be so many things. Right. And I know you've talked about this before, but it it is a genre that encompasses all, there are so many, so many maps to take to get to that destination. Right. You know, but, um, but for me, what's been speaking to me lately is 
something that surprises me, you know, like hereditary. I didn't know what I was getting into. Hereditary and Riverdale. And Riverdale. (laughs) But see, that that's me. That's me as a horror filmmaker. Right. In a nutshell. It's like, oh my gosh, when they when Archie was getting chased through the house. Um, by the Black Hood, I'm like, oh, this feels like there was some there was some camera work that reminded me of Scream. Right. Um, there were obvious moments in the episode before that that reminded me of Halloween. I know that horror is on their radar, and I love seeing that expressed in a teen drama because that reminds me of what I love and live for about 90s horror. It's interesting because I do think horror is in the DNA of Riverdale. I'm 100% with you because uh, the showrunner is the one who did Afterlife with Archie in the comic books, and then he went to television. And even though the show's not a horror show, we get so many of these moments that are homages well to say nothing of the carrie musical episode right (laughs) which is brilliant in its execute well yeah i don't know i mean we're not a riverdale podcast right but no but i we can talk about it like (laughs) i have allowed guests to go far afield before and it's okay you know this is a cheryl blossom stan account (laughs) yes cheryl give her a bow and arrow and a girlfriend and sign me up for 10 seasons the thing i love about that show and then i'll leave it i'll leave it to lie is that it's like the the homoerotic chemistry between 90% of the characters is oh, just God. so, yep. uh, you know, the funny thing is, is all throughout Archie comics history, the question is always sort of like, who will Archie choose, Betty or Veronica? And I watch Riverdale and I'm like, I want Veronica and Betty to get together and ditch the ginge and like go live their best lesbian life because Hell those yeah. two women have so much chemistry. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and now I'm hearing that they may actually like let Archie and Kevin have like a moment next season. So I would love that. Oh yeah. God, wouldn't we all that after that wrestling episode? We're here for it. But here's the thing. Like, <laughs> I also understand that. Well, no, actually, maybe I don't. I was going to go off on this thing where it's like talk making excuses for things that I love. Right. And I don't do that. Right. <laughs> it's like I love I love things for the way that they are. Right. You know, there should be no guilty pleasures. Just love what you love unapologetically. I had a I had a manager when I was working at Borders in the in the in the DVD section. I'd always ask him like, "Oh, is this good or is this bad?" And he's like, "There is no good and bad. It's did this entertain you or not?" Right. And it allowed me to see things through a different perspective. And that's the time in my life when I discovered Chopping Mall and my love for that, or right. you know, and now it Death Spa and things that I just love because they are great. Um, there was a moment in film school where I had uh, <laughs> I had premiered this movie Furbots, right? And Furbots is a movie that takes place at Y two K, and it's Furbies that come to life um, to try and end the world. All right, so. You know, of course, I channeled Critters, Gremlins, all of these creature feature movies. And right. I was kind of throwing out, you know, lighting references. And I talked about uh, this. This is very despa and kind of and, and people would laugh. And the professor's like, so is that what this is? This is all just fodder for laughter to you. And and it's interesting to have that be the perspective. If you love something that people don't consider to be great. Right. Then what does that say about you? Well, I think there's something queer about that. There is something queer about that. I love Death Spa, by the way. Um, the, the actual Death Spa is a Chase Bank across the street from the Chateau Marmont. So Stop if, it. if ever you're standing across the street at the Chateau <laughs> oh Marmont, gosh. just using the ATM, know that that is the Death Spa. Michael, thank you. Uh, you're welcome. This has also just been like your hot Hollywood location tip on Dead for Filth. Um, Day trip three. I think that like a good button on that Mr. Lobo who used to be a horror host I think he still is uh, you know when there were regional horror hosts he had this quote that I always felt was very applicable to what you're talking about and he said there are no bad movies only bad audiences and I think there's something very true about that because every movie 
every movie. Hear me out here, people. You that you one listener who secretly loves Ishtar. Every movie is someone's favorite movie. And that's what makes it. That's who it was made for. It was made for that person. Just like Shonda Rhimes made Britney Spears' Crossroads for me. <laughs> yes, 100%. I wonder if Zoe Saldana ever thinks about that film. She does, and she said she'd do a sequel. I, I've, I, sh- everybody said so except for Britney Spears. Come on, Britney Spears. I know you're a Dead for Filth listener. She is. Britney, uh, Britney is a big Sign fan of girl. Dead for Filth. Um, We're ready. We want another one. Crossroads 2, Cross Harder. Oh, man. I want Britney to do uh, a Dead for Filth track. <laughs> I don't even know where I was going with that. Uh, so what are what's next? What's next on the horizon for you? What are you working on? Oh, uh, so I'm writing the Quiet Room feature. Okay. Um, and I'm also exploring other avenues, which has been a very exciting piece of being in L.A. You know, it's uh, I've been able to take meetings with some of my favorite studios and uh, and figure out what I get to do next. Right. Um, so we'll see. You know, right now it's a matter of my film is going to a ton of festivals, which has been really exciting. And being able to go to some of those and see it with an audience has been uh, a dream. What's the coolest place you've traveled to with the film? Uh, or most memorable? It doesn't have to be like, it may, it may not be like cool location wise, but it like was so significant to you. You know, actually I would say uh, Wicked Queer in Boston. Um, so my grandmother... Uh, got very sick earlier this year and she always said she wanted to go to um, a red carpet premiere um, someday for me and I thought that's when she is. She's like, I'm going to be your date. And um, and unfortunately, she passed away um, earlier this year, but three weeks later, it played in Boston, which no. is a city outside of um, where she used to live. And I got to return to this place that is so special to me. And even though she couldn't be there, um, I rented a car and I drove to her old place and I just did this road trip um, on the coast where I got to see all these places that um, were very special to me. And so in, in that way, uh, it felt like I had come almost, you know, this this full circle moment where it's like, oh, this is what's next for me. Right. And what's cool about it is it played in um, uh, in the Museum of Fine Arts. And so it was like the coolest backdrop for, I mean, I'm walking around these crazy cool exhibits and everybody there was there for, you know, serious art. Not that this isn't serious art, but I love when people um, not get tricked into watching a horror film, but what happens with The Quiet Room is people don't know where to put it. You know, right. it's like, it's not a camp film. It's It's a pretty serious film about mental illness and yet it's terrifying. So I'm in this packed audience and you know it's tons of tons of people there for something serious and I got to watch as they jumped out of their seats because they're not conditioned horror fans right there are people there you know for uh, just to see a good film and the response afterwards I mean people it was like I was mobbed by people afterwards who just wanted to talk about this movie I love and, that. Like, to the point where like the security was like you guys need to go like <laughs> and it was uh it was a pretty incredible experience um also just a fantastic festival wicked queer in boston but i would say that for me is the moment so wicked queer wicked queer <laughs> love that uh no that's a beautiful story and i uh, i love that there was a personal connection to it absolutely <sighs> sam where can people find you oh uh yeah, people can find me at Sam Weinman on uh, Twitter and Instagram. Um, and that's the same for uh, festival updates because I tend to tweet and retweet them. But um, it's different for the film for different places. So uh, Twitter, it's Quiet Room Film. Uh, Instagram is The Quiet Room 
film and Facebook is you can just find The Quiet Room. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to come and talk to us today. Thank you for having me. This has been so much fun. It was a joy to have you. Uh, please, listeners, if you see The Quiet Room playing at a festival anywhere near you, go see it. Also, keep up with Sam's uh, social media so you know what he's up to next. Also, this man's going to be riding an AIDS life cycle next year, so keep your eyes open because if you want to contribute to a great cause, he certainly, I'm sure, would be happy to take your donation. And uh, any any final thoughts before we head off into the night? Uh, looking forward to our panel together. That's right. Uh, for those of you in Southern California in the month of July, uh, Sam and I will be appearing at Midsummer Scream together on a panel uh, with some fellow uh, queer horror people, including Alaska Thunderfuck 5000. Oh, she will be there. So yes, uh, just keep your eyes open and remain ever vigilant at fans um <laughs> what that was thank you again sam thank you this has been dead for filth i'm your host michael Verratti. yours always in glam and gore good night and good luck